Good morning. Uh, as we get started uh, talking about joy, I just want to take a moment to celebrate again the serve day that we had a few weeks ago. We have uh, some uh, pictures that we want to show just as a reminder uh, of what God uh, is doing through our church in our community really all the time. But that day, it's just a little more evident and obvious. So let's celebrate together. Let's, let's check out some of these uh, memories. I just love seeing those pictures. One of the things I uh, appreciate when I watch those pictures is the, the intergenerational aspect of what we did. I mean, you saw some, some pretty tiny tots out there, and then there were some uh, more advanced in age, uh, those who have, have gone farther down the road than others, and uh, everybody working together and accomplishing things that I think were a blessing to our community and certainly was uplifting to us to do that. So thank you again for being a part of that. I, I love that, that we're a part of a church family that cares about our community and, and enjoys working together like that. Um, as we uh, jump in today, we're finishing up this series called Joy Like Water. I wanna do a quick review of the, the metaphor we've been using for this is the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and how joy, we want joy to flow through our lives the way that water flows through the Sea of Galilee. So we receive joy from our, our relationship with God in Christ uh, is, a, is a joy-giving, a life-giving relationship. Uh, but we also want to express that joy through the way that we live, the way that we treat other people. And so the Sea of Galilee has this, this Jordan River that flows into it and gives it fresh water. And then it has the Jordan River flows then out of it south uh, to, toward the Dead Sea. And the Sea of Galilee is full of life, birds and fish, and it's just a, an abundant, uh, place of abundant life. And that's what I want my life to be like. Don't, don't you, do you, don't you wanna be the kind of person that when people see and examine your life, they go, man, there's, there's just life there, there's abundance there, that, that, that's a joyful person. I, I want my life to reflect that. And that means I have to have this inflow of joy from my relationship with God, and I have, this, I have to have this outflow of joy in my expressions of that in uh, my relationships with others. But the Dead Sea, uh, on the other hand, the Dead Sea has inflow, but it has no outflow. It's the lowest spot. And so all the water flows down into it and nothing flows out of it. And uh, the Dead Sea is what? It's, it's dead. Good. You guys are on it today. Six of you. 
Uh, good job. So the Dead Sea is dead. I mean, there's no life there. And I don't, that's the kind of person I don't want to be. I don't want to uh, be a person that, that sort of sucks the joy out of a room. You've, you've, you've been there. You know that kind of person. Maybe it was you at some point. And I, that's not what I want to be. But I, that's the kind of person that we can become when uh, we build in these habits that make ourselves the center. Everything flows into us, nothing flows out. So how can we uh, elevate our joy and, and sustain our joy um, through these outflows, these expressions of joy into the lives of other people? So we talked about compassion and sacrifice as outflows of joy. And today we're gonna talk about integrity as an outflow of joy. That living a life of integrity actually increases your level of joy and sustains your joy right? To me, this, this one is less uh, hard to grasp. This one is a little, it makes a little more sense to me because I know that in my life, some moments when I have sacrificed integrity, when I have lost integrity, are moments when I, I did not have joy. And I think about King David, when David uh, was caught out in his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, and he um, was confronted with that. He confessed and repented, and he writes Psalm 51 as, a, as an act of repentance and confession of his sin. And he says in verse 12, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Like David, he sacrificed his integrity, and it killed his joy. And so he prays this prayer, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that, I've been there. I've been in that place where I've sacrificed. I've lost integrity. And, um, and, it, and it killed my joy. And, and you've, you've probably been there too. There, there, there are times, you know that feeling of living with uh, fear or anxiety or shame or guilt because of actions, behaviors, choices that you've made that you knew were not in line with who God created you to be. So we're gonna talk about what integrity looked like in the life of Jesus, in the life of Paul, and what it can look like in our lives. And we're gonna look at a Dead Sea habit that can interfere with our integrity. But first of all, let's, let's sort of try to define integrity. There's a lot of different ways to, to define integrity. But I wanna think, I want you to think in terms of, um, for today, in terms of a building, like this building that we're in, has what you would call structural integrity. You heard that phrase? Structural integrity. That means that it was built on certain principles of what makes a building strong, what makes something, uh, w the wall strong enough to hold up a roof and to withstand wind, like structural integrity is based on these certain principles of construction and building. And so you know that if, if someone goes into a project without knowing those principles, that the product may not have structural integrity. And this has been the story of my life in building things. I, I, I don't know the principles. I don't know why my son is laughing. It's not funny. Uh, what, so if you, if you don't know the principles, then, then you can't apply them. Uh, I got into a project, I was working on something, for my, a gift for my wife, and I got about halfway into it and I realized, I, I wouldn't have put it in these terms, I, but it had no structural integrity. This thing was not gonna hold what I wanted it to hold. So I had to call a friend uh, and say, help me. <laughs> because I don't know these principles. And that's, that's how we figured it out. And you also know, you, you've, uh, you can know the principles and choose not to follow them. So maybe you've been in a building where a builder took shortcuts in order to save time or money and the product did not have structural integrity because even though they knew the principles, they chose to ignore them for the sake of something else, a gain in another area, right? So our lives can be like that. Our lives can be, there are these principles that come from God, that God builds into us, Jesus models for us. And those principles lead to a life of integrity that can, that can hold our roof up over our heads and, and withstand the storms of life. And 
If we choose to live by those principles, if we choose to know them first, we have to know them. And then if we choose to live by what we know, then we can live a life of integrity. But if we either refuse to know the principles or we choose to ignore them, then our lives will not have structural integrity. And uh, it's like Jesus's parable about the wise man and the foolish man and the wise man built his house on a rock and it had structural integrity. And when the winds came, it stood and the foolish man built his house on the sand. And when the winds came, it splat, right? Some of you know the song. And in Jesus's parable, the rock is the teachings of Jesus. That's what he says. If you build your life on my teachings, you'll stand strong and be firm. So that's kind of what we're gonna dive into. Jesus lived with integrity. He not only taught us these principles, but he lived these principles out in an unbelievable way. So Jesus had enemies, right? You guys know Jesus had enemies that ultimately uh, were able to get Jesus crucified, right? Executed. So they, they don't like Jesus. They think he's causing problems. They think he's ruining their, their religion. And so they, they don't have the authority. The Jewish religious leaders did not have the authority to execute Jesus. Only Rome did. So they have to convince Rome that Jesus deserves to die. So they go to Rome and they say, hey, this Jesus guy is a problem. We want you to execute him for us, right? Thank you, I appreciate the help. Uh, I, and so that's exactly what they went. And so Rome says, then what did Jesus do to deserve death? And so these Jewish leaders, the most powerful Jewish people in that region who have all of these resources, they've got a lot of money, they've got networks of people all over the country. They even have a spy in Jesus's own group. And the best thing they can come up with when the Romans are like, well, just tell us something that he did wrong. And the best thing they can come up with is, well, he said he was gonna tear the temple down and then rebuild it in three days. And the Romans have gotta be like, so? Like, that's it? That's all you've got on this guy? I mean, he's been a public figure for three years. That's all you've got on him? And so you can understand Pilate's, you know, uh, dilemma with like, this, is this man has done nothing deserving death is what Pilate actually said. Can you imagine if someone was looking in your life to find something to accuse you of, could they find something? Yes. Wouldn't take them long. Just talk to somebody in my family for five minutes, right? And Jesus lived with such integrity. And this is what Peter challenges uh, the believers that Peter's writing to these believers who are scattered sort of all over the, the Greek and Roman world. Um, and they're living in these cultures where they're being accused of being bad citizens because they won't offer um, pagan sacrifices, right? That was sort of just part of being a good citizen in those cities is you, you contribute by going to the temple, you buy this sacrifice and you offer the sacrifice to the false God. And that's your way of contributing to local economy and, and just aligning yourself with the, uh, you know, what everybody else does and believes. And the Christians wouldn't do it because they, they weren't going to offer sacrifices to false gods. And so they're, they're being accused of being bad citizens. And so here's what Peter writes to them. In 1 Peter 2, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He said, even if they wanna accuse you of doing wrong, if they look into your life, they're not gonna find anything that sticks. They're not gonna find you actually living out sinful lifestyles and sinful habits in your life. They're not gonna be able to find that. That's, that's a life of integrity. That is the ability to surrender to these godly principles for, for the way we were created to live, the way that, that emulates the life of Jesus. That's what we were designed for. Um, so the life of integrity is costly. 
It is costly, but it's, it's costly like a Ferrari is costly. You guys, how many of you have your, you drove your Ferrari to church today? Anybody? If you did, I, please, I would like to talk to you. I would love to drive your car. Um, I'm not ashamed to ask that. But if you saw Ferrari, and we've seen them every now and then in Cicero, there's one that comes through town that's like the old Magnum PI Ferrari. You guys remember Magnum PI? And it's, every time I see it, I think of, I mean, it looks like there's Tom Selleck is driving it. And if you don't get that, uh, Congratulations, you're younger than me. So, um, but like Ferraris stand out, right? When you see them, you're like, whoa, there's a Ferrari. That's, that's a, why do they stand out? Because they're rare. And why are they rare? Because they're extremely expensive. They're extremely expensive. A life of integrity is kind of like that. A life of integrity is, is expensive. It's costly because you, that means you're not taking shortcuts. You're not taking shortcuts in the way you're building your life. Shortcuts that might benefit you in the short term. You're saying no to those and it's costly, but it's also absolutely worth the cost. It's absolutely worth the cost to have a life of integrity that, that stands out. And when you, you will walk around in the world and people recognize there's something different about you. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a Ferrari, Ferrari life. <laughs> And uh, it's worth what it costs. So Paul lived this way. And so we want to dive in a little bit to how Paul lived this out and, and what we can learn from him and how we can apply some of these things that he uh, lived and taught. So in Philippians chapter three, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12. In verse, uh, the, the passage we read last week was right before this where, where Paul's talking about, I want to know Jesus. Like I, that's the most important thing. That's the thing that drives me. I want to know Jesus. I, I want to share with him. Even in his suffering, Paul says, even if I have to suffer to be close to him, bring it on, I'll suffer so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then we pick up in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. I'm not there yet, Paul would say. Like, I know what I've been called to and I'm not there yet. But, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus took hold of Paul. Paul had a moment in his life where Jesus sort of grabbed him by the shirt collar and said, hey, I, I, I have something to say to you. I have an invitation for you. And he invited Paul to, to leave the path of persecuting the church and to step into the path of planting churches. I mean, talk about a 180 degree turnaround. And Paul says, Jesus took hold of me because he gave me a purpose and he gave me an invitation into a relationship. And Paul says, I'm, I'm pressing on to that. I'm leaning into that. I'm leaning into that relationship and that purpose for which Jesus took hold of me. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Again, Paul is, is thankfully making himself relatable with us when he says, I'm not there yet. I have not finished this task. I have not become fully the person that God created me to be. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind Paul says, I've got some junk in my past and I'm moving on from it. I'm leaving it behind. I'm forgetting what is behind and I'm straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't beat himself up for his pain. He, he acknowledges he's a sinner. In fact, in one place he says, I am the worst sinner you can imagine. That's me. But Paul says, I am, I am forgiven and free and I'm leaving that behind. That's, that's behind me. There's something ahead of me that I'm pushing on to. And that thing ahead of me is, is fulfillment in this relationship with Jesus, this participation in the new creation that's coming. He'll, he'll get to that here in just a second. Well, let's just go ahead. Let's just jump in. Paul's, Paul's doing good. Let's not slow him down. Um, verse 17, Philippians 3:17. So he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Man, that's, that's kind of a bold 
you know, declare, isn't it like to be able to stand in front of a group of people who love Jesus and are following Jesus and to say, hey, if you would just be more like me, then you'll end up being more like Jesus because I am trying to be like Jesus. Man, I, uh, I hope <laughs> that, that there's, there's a day I can say that. There are moments when I could say like in this moment, if you were to follow my example, you would end up being more like Jesus. But there are also moments when I would have to say, if you were following my example, you would not be like Jesus in this moment. So I appreciate Paul's confidence to be able to say this, but his dedication to integrity. He's I'm building my life on these godly principles so that if you follow my example, and, and Paul is not singling himself out. He says, um, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul says, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only person who's setting a good example for Jesus-centered living. There are others who are committed, just as committed as I am. So Paul's not setting himself up on a pedestal above everyone else. He's saying, the people around you, look at the lives of the people around you. And those who are following Jesus, be like them. Learn from them. Let them teach you something about what it looks like to live on godly principles, to live a life that reflects the nature and character of Christ. So he says, uh, verse 18, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. I think that Paul is not only talking about non-Christians in this passage. That's the sad thing about it. Certainly, Paul, is, Paul would acknowledge that those who, who don't know Jesus, they don't know, maybe they don't know the godly principles in which to build their lives on, so they can't build a life of integrity. I think Paul is also referring to people within the family of God who, who their minds are on earthly things. Paul says they're so laser beam focused on the here and now. They're, they're not worth imitating. They're not worth following. And I think you and I need to be really discerning about who we imitate, who we want to be like, who we want to follow. Because there are people in, in our world, locally, regionally, nationally, that we look at and we go, man, what a great leader. Uh, you know, they're doing good things. They're, they won't try to make the world a better place. But if they're not Jesus followers, they're not Jesus followers, then is that, is that, who, we're, is that who we're trying to imitate? Those are the people that we want to give influence over our lives or influence over the lives of our children. So we need to be very discerning about the kind of people that, that we sign up to follow. So here's, here's what Paul says. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Again, Paul is looking ahead. He's not just looking at the here and now and, and what's right in front of him. He's looking at the, also the invisible, eternal uh, part of the world, the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Paul says, there is a transformation coming. There is a time when you and I aren't gonna have to stress about how hard it is to live a life of integrity. There's a time in the new creation when, when that's not gonna be a concern anymore. God's gonna deal with sin once and for all, it'll be gone. So we're looking forward to that time. Aren't you looking forward to the time when you're not faced with like moral dilemmas every day, Right? Ethical dilemmas every day. Relationship conflict every day. Aren't you looking forward to that time? But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Paul says we're leaning into it. That's what's in front of us, but we're not there yet. But as we're on the way, let's practice. <laughs> let's practice what it's like. 
to live with integrity, to let, to let the life and teaching of Jesus guide our behavior. Because integrity, guys, I'm telling you, it leads to joy. It produces joy in our lives. We'll dig into that a little more here in just a minute. Uh, I wanna pause for just a second and, and point out a Dead Sea habit that I think can interfere with our integrity and um, remember, when I say a Dead Sea habit, we're using this metaphor of the Dead Sea as the lowest point and everything flows into it and nothing flows out of it. And that these are habits that make ourselves the center. They make us the center. We want everything to kind of work out for us and be convenient for us and be comfortable for us. And it's, it's got very little to do with thinking about the needs of others and, and expressing love to the people around us. So the Dead Sea habit that I think interferes with our integrity is our desire to have Control. Control. I think we faced this head on um, in March of 2020 when a lot of things that we thought we had control over suddenly changed. And we realized, I don't have control over this anymore. And most of us matured to a point where we realized, you know what, I never actually had control over that to begin with, but I thought I did, or we felt like we did. And so that loss of control, or even the loss of, of perceived control, was disrupting and disorienting for us on a, on a deep level uh, as, a, as a nation, as a, as a, as a, as a world, um, and, and just in, in our own homes. And so uh, this idea that we can control and we want to control things uh, interferes with our joy in ways that show up, I think, on a daily basis. So uh, think about uh, the times when you have to wait in line, whether maybe it's at the grocery store, uh, maybe it's at the BMV, um, it's your favorite place to wait in line, right? Um, maybe it's in traffic. You're in traffic, you're on the, on the highway and you're trying to get somewhere and the people in front of you, when you're, whenever you're waiting in line, you, you automatically assume that someone in front of you is not doing things correctly, right? <laughs> either either the, the person at the checkout or the, just the system is broken or somebody's driving, you know, like uh, poorly um, in front of you. I, I almost made some, and I just, I just didn't. So, whew, censoring. All right, good job. Um, but somebody's driving badly in front of you. You make these assumptions. And what we, what we think is the issue in that moment is patience, right? And so we go, God, give me patience, <laughs> right? Give me patience because I have to wait. And yes, we need patience. But I think what's underneath that need for patience is this desire to control. Because what we're really upset about is the fact that I don't have control over the pace of my life. Someone has stepped into my world and made me go at a slower pace than what I actually want to go, Right? And that lack of control causes anxiety or creates fear or anger or annoyance or aggravation or whatever. And this, this lack of control, this is what happens uh, when we get aggravated with other people. Almost always, when we get aggravated with another person, a human being, whether it's your spouse or your child or your mom or your dad, it's because you don't have control over what they're doing and you wish you did. You were like, oh boy, if I was the parent, if I was the mom, if I was the dad, this is how I, if I had control, things would work better for me. And so we get frustrated and we get annoyed. And, and as parents, we do this with our kids. Like, why don't you just, I've said it a thousand times. Why can't you just, please, for once, for crying out loud, I put stuff on the steps so that when you go up the steps, you'll take it with you. And they don't, do they? Like, they just don't, right? If you have steps in your house, you know. And I don't have control over these small humans and how they think and what they feel and what they do. And I wish I did. I feel like as a parent, like I'm a, a dad, shouldn't I be in control? No, no. Control is for God, not me. 
I, I have control over one thing, what's happening in here. I don't have control over anything else. And so an exercise you and I need to practice is letting go of control, the desire to control other people, the desire to control the circumstances in our lives. And I promise you there's joy on the other side of that. So maybe that's a practice you need to dive into today. Just think about what are the things I'm trying to control? What are the things that I'm frustrated that I can't control? And how can I uh, just let go of that by laying that before God? So uh, let's wrap up with this. I wanna dive into just three quick um, habits that I think will help uh, increase the flow of joy in our lives. If we're receiving joy from our relationship with God, remember that's always where we're starting with a joy conversation. We're assuming you have a relationship with God that is the inflow of joy into your life. Then how, how is that being expressed in our lives that make us Sea of Galilee kind of people, full of abundant life, instead of Dead Sea people, um, full of salt and nothing else? So here's, here's habit number one. First is to be honest. Be honest. Uh, be honest is living with nothing to prove. Ephesians 4, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. That this is a godly principle. This is reflected in the life of Jesus. And when you build your life on honesty, you're building integrity and structural integrity into your life. And so this is so simple. We teach our kids this from early on. In fact, isn't it um, interesting parents that we don't have to teach our kids to lie? right? They, they just seem to figure that out all by themselves, right? But we do have to teach them to tell the truth. And so we think, man, I learned that when I was three years old. Tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, right? And what do your parents always say? You'll get in less trouble if you tell me the truth than if you lie and I find out about it, right? And so as kids, we're like, challenge accepted. You're not going to find out. <laughs> that was me. Maybe not you, maybe not you, but that was, that was me, I think that we don't grow out of this. We don't grow out of this um, temptation to massage the truth. We just do it for different reasons. When you're a kid, you do it to avoid getting in trouble, right? You lie to, to not get in trouble. As adults, we do it to shape our public image. That's most often when we lie. We embellish stories. We tell the story differently. We add to, we subtract from so that people will think of us the way that we want them to think of us. So here's the challenge. Pay attention to the stories you tell. And look for two things. Is my goal in this story to make myself the hero or the victim? Either one of those will do for our selfish nature. Because if we're the hero, then people think well of us. They go, oh my goodness, what a great person. And you're so nice. And I'm, you know, I'm just honored to know you, right? If we make ourselves the victim, then we get sympathy. And gosh, I can't believe that happened to you. And I'm so sorry. And that's too bad. And, you know, let me, let's... Let's, let me take you out to dinner. Like, if we can make ourselves the hero or the victim, we win. And listen, there are times when you are the hero and there are times when you are the victim, but there are equally as many times when you are the villain. We don't tell those stories, do we? Let me just encourage you. If, you, if, you, if you're telling a story, don't change anything to make yourself the hero or the victim. And don't ignore the fact that sometimes you're the villain, okay? Be honest, be your true self. Because here, here's how this works, and, it, and it's so ironic that we, we, we think we're, we're trying to get one thing and we actually get what we don't want. When we, when we lie to, to shape our public image, we do that because we think if people knew the truth, they wouldn't like us. 
And so what actually happens is we don't let people know the real us. We cut off the real us so they don't know it and we end up feeling isolated and alone because nobody knows the real us. And why don't they know the real us? Because we don't tell the truth about the real us. And so we actually end up with the opposite. We think we want people to like us and so we massage the truth so people will like us, but what we're actually doing is we're cutting ourselves off from real relationship because we're, we're hiding away a part of ourselves. We, we outthink ourselves. We're too smart for our own good. All right, number two, uh, no secrets. This is sort of related uh, to uh, telling, the, telling the truth, being honest. No secrets means you have nothing to hide. Uh, James uh, talks about this, the brother of Jesus in his letter. He says in 516, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James does something that um, we would hesitate to do. He connects confession with healing. I'm not gonna get into um, all the theology of that statement, but here's, here's the thing I would say. James believes that confession of our sin to other human beings is very important. Now, now some of us have kind of resisted that notion because we connect it with something that, that we're not too sure about. Maybe you've, you've, you've been in Catholic church or you know something about Catholicism and you go, the confession to the priest thing, like we don't have to do that. We can just talk directly to God, right? We have, the, we have this direct access. You can enter the throne of grace with confidence, right? Yes, absolutely. We can confess our sin directly to God. But James says, man, it, there is something powerful about confessing your sin to another human being. And you should do it. It's a spiritual practice and you should do it. There should be somebody in your life that you can confess your sin to. Not, not everybody. Like I, I don't really need to stand up here and tell you all my sins. I do tell you some of my sins sometimes, which is really uncomfortable, by the way. I don't know if you guys ever thought you might wanna do that. Um, if you wanna preach, uh, let me, the first lesson is how to tell people how dumb you are sometimes, right? Um, but I don't need to stand up here and tell you all my sins, but I need to tell all my sins to someone, not to everyone, but to someone. There, and I have a couple people in my life that I confess my sins to. And guys, there's so much freedom in that. Like when we confess to God, we know, we know intellectually that he forgives us. When we look at another human being, we confess our sin and they're able to say back to us, you know, if, if you're repentant, God forgives you. God loves you. There's grace for you. Man, hearing those words from another human being, there's so much power in that. And it's freedom and it leads to joy. So my encouragement for you, if, you're, if you don't have someone that you can confess your sin to, a close friend that you trust, start praying about that. God, would you put somebody in my life that I can confess my sin to? And third, uh, and finally, uh, speak life. Speak life. Uh, this habit will leave you with nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Um, Paul writes again to the Ephesians and 429. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Words have power. This is all over the Bible, by the way. Words have power. And you know that words have power to build up and to break down because you've been on both ends of that. You've been on the other end where someone has, has spoken words that broke you down and hurt you. And you've also been the one who spoke words that broke someone else down and hurt someone else. Paul said, words matter. This is a godly principle that, that if you build your life on, using your words to build up instead of break down, you're building integrity, structural integrity into your life. That's the way of Jesus. So a couple areas where I just want us to think about our words. And, and uh, first is in, in kindness versus apathy. 
the most hurtful message that you can communicate to another human being often is that you don't matter. And we can do that with our words. And, and words are more than just the, the actual things that we say, but it also has to do with our tone too. And this is something that I'm learning and working on, that sometimes my tone is not gentle and kind. And that can be hurtful to people. It can communicate that they don't matter. And I'm, I'm learning that. And it's at times a painful process, okay? But my tone matters. So I'm learning to have a gentle tone, um, but also to use my words for kindness and to communicate value to other people, right? The second area I would uh, consider you, uh, ask you to consider is uh, respect versus profanity. So when we think about profanity, um, we think about ba- the bad words. What are the, what are the bad words? I mean, I'm not asking you to say the, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know there are words out there and here's the, here's the thing. This is something that we all need to recognize. When, when I say, you know, you know, think of the bad words, we're all thinking of the same words, okay? What does that tell you? That tells you that something in our society has sort of decided there, these certain words have a meaning that is what we would call profane or obscene or it's disrespectful in some way to somebody, Right? Now, we don't get to decide that. So the question that kids always ask, every, every kid at some point will ask, well, why is that word bad? What's the big deal? It's just a word, right? Yes, it is just a word, but it's a word that our society has determined has a certain meaning, and that meaning is profane or disrespectful in our culture, right? And what Paul would say, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, is that when we recognize that, that there are certain words that communicate disrespect, that we don't say those words, just out of respect for people. It's just a matter of respect and it's a matter of self-control. Do I have enough self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit, by the way, to not say words that other people find disrespectful or offensive? Do I have enough self-control to do that? That's a question you need to ask and wrestle with, right? This is a matter of respecting other people. So the, the goal then, as Paul would say, is to use our words to build up, not tear down, to use our words to show kindness, communicate value and respect. And when we do that, we have nothing to fear. A lot of times we, we, we have something to fear because of the words that come out of our mouths and then we fear the repercussions of that. But when you use your words to build up, you have nothing to fear from your words. So when you can live with nothing to prove, nothing to hide and nothing to fear, there's, that's a life of integrity. Nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to fear is a life of integrity. And there is joy in that life. It is it is. It is abundant life to, to be able to live that way. Where you're, not, you're not dealing with guilt and shame. And again, like I think people are going, well, you're just, you're just talking about being perfect. I'm talking about moving in the direction of, for sure. Moving in the direction of. We talk about direction, not perfection, right? We're moving in the direction of Jesus-centered living. More honesty, more confession, more kindness with our words than, than yesterday. And that's the goal. We're moving in the direction. We, we have to say, like Paul, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting all of my screw-ups in the past, I am gonna strain toward what is ahead. This life, this transformation that's ahead of me when Jesus is gonna make all things new, I'm moving, I'm moving in that direction with my life today. Because here's why this matters. It doesn't just, it's not just about you. I say this all the time. And you guys think I, I don't uh, think you matter. You matter, but this is not just about you. It matters because when we live lives of integrity, we're like, it's like driving a Ferrari down the streets of Arcadia, right? Someone's gonna notice and be like, where, who are you? And where did you come from? And why are you here, right? 
We get to live this life that people look at and they, they recognize it is costly to live that way. Why would you pay that price? And we know the answer, right? Man, Jesus, I was so lost and Jesus found me. I, I, was, I was so far from God and Jesus brought me close. I was so alone and Jesus invited me into his family. So whatever the cost, I'm gonna build my life on the rock. His teaching, his way. And we get this open door. Integrity opens doors for the gospel in our relationships with other people. So it's not just about you and you know, being able to look like a Ferrari. It's about your opportunity to communicate the gospel to people with some credibility behind it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the um, life and teaching of Jesus that establishes the principles that we know if we live by those, if we pay the price to live by those, you produce in us a life of integrity that's, that's valuable. We thank you for the grace for the times that when, when, when we don't make it, when we mess up. And we're grateful for that as well and the forgiveness available to us. But Father, we ask that you would remind us what you've done for us, the price you paid to invite us into your family. And that that would be our inspiration for building our lives on the rock of Jesus' teaching, on these principles of integrity. So that, Father, so that we have a chance to share the gospel with someone. Would you do that in us and through us to your glory? In Christ's name, amen.